What are you reading now? And what have you read in the past? How do the things you've read in the past help you better understand what you're reading today? Or in the future for that matter? And what if it wasn't just what you read, but what you listened to or watched? And hey, what if this could be shared with lots of folks? Welcome to That Reminds Me. This is episode 1E, featuring a conversation between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna, recorded on 10 December 2019. Adish and Ashish spoke about a flash-forward episode about crimes in space, about Marlene Zook's book, Paleo Fantasy, and about an Econ Talk podcast episode in which Russ Roberts interviews George Will. So, it seems that both of us are not in our usual places. You're in Dharwad and I'm in Delhi. And this means that I get to study, but you're on a 4G connection uh, for this. So this is going to be an interesting episode. I am stress-testing stress testing a place called Hoysala Lodge. Like I don't think it has ever been stress-tested before. There's a laptop, a phone, all working off just one plug point in the room. This is going to be fun. Super. The things that we do for our non-existent audiences. Yes. All right. Speaking of non-existent audiences, what are we treating them to in this particular episode? So we are going to talk about a book called Paleo Fantasy. We are going to talk about an Econ Talk episode in which Russ Roberts in- interviews George Will, the Washington Post com- uh, columnist. And we are going to talk about an episode of a po- podcast called Flash Forward, which is about crimes in space. Fantastic. If you don't mind, let's begin with the third one first. Sure. Primarily because I know very little about both the podcast as well as this particular episode. So why don't we begin by you speaking about A, what the podcast is and B, what this particular episode is. So the podcast is called Flash Forward. It Mm -hmm. is a sci-fi science fiction inspired podcast. And every episode looks at one of the standard uh, futures which science fiction uh, talks about. Mm -hmm. I don't know if standard is the right word, but one of the futures which you would typically encounter in science fiction. So a a major change to our our current present. And the way way it structures the episode is to uh, start with a short radio play which is set in such a future. Mm -hmm. It then spends uh, some time on how we get from the present to such a future. And once that's done, it spends the last uh, segment on what the consequences would be if we actually had uh, such a future, not just in terms of how they would be in a movie or a book, but overall for uh, people. When we are talking about this particular episode, it says uh, we are now in a future where space settlement is going on rapidly. Humans have expanded into space. And now that there are so many humans in space, but everyone is still at the settlement stage and there are no functioning legal or justice systems in space. What happens when a crime is committed in space? Okay. All right, let's get to it. Um, You, the first thing that was slightly confusing to me, puzzling to me is you spoke about the kids debate about who had resources or not to conduct a trial. Oh, yeah. When so, you say kids, 
So, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, the episode starts off with a radio play. And uh, ah, okay. this particular episode, the play is a, is a teenager's debating club, which is uh, t- talking about how a crime committed on the moon should be uh, prosecuted and uh, punished. The, mm-hmm. the crime in question is that uh, someone is driving a rover on the moon and r- runs over somebody else. And since at this point of time, there are very few settlers on the moon. There's obviously no police, no no judge. So how do you get... And uh, what sort of uh, crime do you treat this as if you don't even know uh, whose jurisdiction you're under? Okay. All right. Uh, So let's begin with the very first bullet point on your uh, episode about separating out the processes investigating on the moon and uh, moon and sorry and trial and sentencing on earth my first question and it doesn't really remind me of anything in particular but my first question about this concept would be would the same laws apply on the moon as they do on earth should justice have if not different principles at least different standards or yardsticks on different places this is something which one of the uh, sides of the debate in this uh, t- 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 teenage t- or high school debate club made a very big deal about. And mm-hmm. uh, But again, these are all American kids uh, uh, playing the uh, future kids. So they kind of fixated on a jury trial and said, uh, well, uh-huh. we should be uh, tried by a jury of our, our peers, which is a very American concept. I don't know. Okay how jury trials there are outside uh, the USA but uh, this uh, the uh, the guy made a point that if i'm a space settler and i'm tried on earth nobody is my peer I, my my only peers are other space settlers when uh, rose evlith who's the host and producer of this podcast uh, told, uh, talk to a, a professor of space law about this, the professor said, this is actually a great point. Hmm. I can't for the life of me remember now where I read this and who said it, knowing my addiction for marginal revolution, it probably was on that blog. But uh, the comment essentially went along the lines of the biggest difficulty with colonizing Mars will be the Lord of the Flies. In the sense that, yeah, so in the sense that it's not so much about the physics of it or the logistics of it, but it is about coming up with a different set of laws, codes and moralities on what is essentially a, literally a whole new world. And the skepticism of whether it likely will succeed using the Lord of the Flies as an example. So that's very techno-optimistic about uh, how easy it will be to uh, get to the to get to, to, to get to Mars, not that I don't want to give the wrong impression. It, uh, assuming all of that takes place, the likelihood that you will still succeed on Mars is going to be broken down by the Lord of the Flies argument. So whoever that person was, was skeptical about getting there in the first place, but he said that is not the biggest obstacle to begin with. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I mean, sh- sure, and I, I don't know if uh, what you read made this point or not, but not just once you get to Mars, even getting mm-hmm. to Mars is a two to three year voyage. So 
those two to three years is enough for a lot of the fly scenario to emerge <laughs> yes which reminds me and i'm sure you are half anticipating it by now but which reminds me very strongly of seven eves yeah and it's actually quite a little surprising to me that uh, you didn't reference this over here but this very strongly reminded me of uh, i don't want to give plot spoilers to anybody who's listening this and hasn't read seven eves but the whole shenanigans that erupt uh, on the space module or space station or whatever it is called in terms of the lady landing up the president of the united states of america landing up over there and how she tries to get a sense of both administrative power and loses out as a consequence of what she does was fascinating and it will play out probably uh perhaps we should also tell our listeners what seven eves is <laughs> always a good idea so why don't you oblige yeah seven eves is a book about uh, about what happens when the earth is destroyed when the moon uh, breaks up and the earth gets bombarded by moon rocks and uh in a bit to save the human race unlike deep impact where uh, a- everyone takes shel- shelter in a bunker here the bid is to uh, ship people off to another star so uh, i think about 1000 people are sent into space and i don't think it's a major spoiler to say that it doesn't really work out <laughs> true so a whole host of science fiction memories that are cropping up but before we get down to the science fiction memories your second bullet point reminds me of something and what it reminds me of actually kind of negates the third bullet point uh, in your post so when you speak about how the spacers in a isaac asimov story send back to earth for a policeman the weirdest thing that this reminded me of was and i don't know the story is apocryphal or not but apparently greek used to import tax inspectors from germany because it was a culturally uncool thing to be a tax inspector in greece oh. i'll look it up and uh, add this in the show notes but i'm fairly sure that i've read this and it's a classic case of cultures really not transmitting across space so the reason i would argue it negates your uh, third point is because i think cultural differences really and truly do matter they matter on the same continent in the same time space so in, in the same time era or whatever you want to call it for us to think about different eras across space and time i think cultural differences is really and truly matter i think this is something that's going to come up when we talk about the georgeville episode but uh, <laughs> let's yes. uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves they, they do uh, they do matter but the the question is how much uh, how much do they matter mm-hmm. uh, and the high, high school debate really seemed to uh, be centered around this is all that matters i yeah, I, I mean sure. I, i think that that's more to do with those particular uh, actors and i think this was an unscripted uh, debate okay so uh, ra- rather than the rather than the concepts of the episode itself okay uh all right moving on to the next uh, bullet point about why not apply the law of the seas to space you make the point over here that the law of the seas has an underlying agreement where and the point of difference is that space is somewhere you go to rather than space being a point of transition 
that might not necessarily be true right you might end up staying in space as well it's a pretty large place after all uh so i mean i think you misinterpreted me because uh, this is what i uh, was thinking about that if for example you're on the moon and the crime is committed uh, on the moon mm-hmm. either the moon needs to have its own, uh, own laws or it needs to apply some uh, uh, some other laws but yeah the, the moon is not a, uh, a voyage but if you are on a rocket to the moon then i would say yeah okay now maybe the law, law of the seas can apply or or be extended okay okay all right uh this is as i reread the post i'm being reminded of a whole variety of things the whole riff on as you say throw them out of the airlock but then you're short a crew member the thing that this reminds me of is and again it's a weird thing to be reminded of but maslow's hierarchy of needs related to the concept of justice and that's that's a very weird link to make but hear me out if you want to think about justice from the point of view of do you want to preserve society or do you want to worry about rights for the individual the older the more primitive a society was i'm guessing and this is pure uh, shooting in the dark on my part i don't have any empirical evidence for this right now but i would argue that it would likely be rules about preserving the society at the cost of the individual as society is mature you are likely to move to the other end of the spectrum would you is, is that a fair characterization i don't know maybe we should get a sociologist to join us on these calls <laughs> maybe so when you say throw them out of the airlock but then you're a crew sh- uh, short a crew member it's not just the fact that you're short a crew member but also is the fact that you've trampled all over an individual's rights so that based on whatever standards you're maximizing the probability presumably of society surviving well this was a uh, uh, a bullet point which came at the end of a very long discussion about how you would pu- punish somebody and uh, okay. it said that uh, in space you don't have the resources to uh, set up a prison mm-hmm. you don't have uh, the ability or at least to send somebody back to earth to be imprisoned is also extremely costly yeah there is really no good way to uh, say that uh, your punishment is forced labor because uh, in this settlement uh, stage everyone is going to be laboring in any way so the only credible p- punishment is to p- throw, throw somebody out of the airlock or if you're settled on a moon or on on a planet to exile them outside the s- settlement which is effectively a death sentence so it's just this uh, very strange uh, Uh, position where proportionate punishment is not really possible moving or thinking very out of the box uh, i would also say that you mentioned about how space might not have prisons if you use the australia analogy space itself conceivably could have been a prison so if this had been truly ancient times the likelihood that people would have wanted to go into space might have been remarkably lesser and you might have had initial space voyages space voyages sorry being manned by people who effectively were being sent to prison as they were in the case of australia but that is likely not going to happen now it's interesting how society has transitioned you likely to have many more people volunteering to go to space or at least that's what 
the media would have us believe mm. but again while australia was used as a prison i i don't know if it was seen as that much of a prison or if all of australia was seen as that much of a prison just a hundred years later you had a lot of people going not just to australia but to south africa argentina um, all over asia to try and make their fortunes and entirely voluntarily yeah okay uh you spoke about transformative justice in the context of work i've read the bullet point but i'm not entirely sure that i understand it would you care to elaborate both for me and for the listeners okay so the flash forward episode ends by talking about transformative justice right i need to warn both you and anyone else who's listening that the person who was explaining transformative justice on the episode was probably limited by it being a phone call so it was maybe not the best explanation and in chinese whispers i'm probably going to give a, te- a terrible explanation my- myself but we'll take our chances uh, yeah i I'm, i'm going to do my best so the justice that we are familiar with is retributive justice where right. if you commit a crime you're punished mm-hmm. well ideally through the criminal justice system and not through uh, vigilantism or uh, a mob but it works on a, pr- a principle of uh, uh, retribution there's something else called restorative justice where it says that if you've committed a crime you need to maybe you won't be punished but you'll have to make some sort of restitution to the victim either you give money or you uh, work for them etc etc transformative justice yeah. which uh, which was discussed in this uh, episode mm-hmm. is a paradigm beyond this where they say that uh, you the perpetrator and the victim are going to supervised by society talk to each other go through a process of accusation reconciliation etc etc until the perpetrator has transformed to the point where he or she or they are not going to commit such a crime in the future again and the victim also feels that whatever they've lost has been uh, made good so it's very touchy feely but if we look at what happened post apartheid in south africa with the truth and reconciliation commissions uh, that's probably where a concept like transformative justice has worked at the largest scale maybe this is i being too much of an indian but i just don't see this working color me cynical if you like but based on what you just said about transformative justice i don't see it happening well do you share my cynicism well the person who uh, explained uh, uh, the concept of tra- uh, transformative j- justice mm-hmm. i think uh, this is uh, her, her name is bianca e floriano okay 
she uh, she described this and i forget if she was uh, if it was uh, ms loriano who said this or uh, the podcast host rose evelith who said this but they did say that yes this this is something that works well in on a small scale or in a small community where everyone knows each other and right. that's probably why it's really suitable for space where the settlements are going to be extremely tiny in terms of how many people there are and this gives us or this gives the future people who are setting up the uh, space settlements the opportunity to really scale, scale up transformative justice beyond a group of 20 people to a larger culture or civilization which is probably very optimistic and like you i don't ever see it working on uh, earth or in india or what we have right now but i i'm i'm quite impressed by the optimism that if it works in space it could be scaled up to a larger civilization okay uh one final point before we move on to the next one and it's kind of tangentially related to what you're speaking about over here i am reminded of or have this very strong urge to speak about the overton window and how it might change with early explorations in space and what standards of justice will be used in early days of space and how that might evolve over time does it make sense does it strike a chord Uh, sure but uh, how about you explain overton windows to the uh, listeners sure so off the top of my head and i'm obviously going to be paraphrasing over here the overton window is essentially what remains or what is acceptable at a given point of time and how it changes slowly but surely i'm i'm sure the official definition will sound much better than what i said right now but hopefully that makes sense in fact the best way to explain this is to use another isaac asimov story in which later generations learn with horror that uh, their ancestors used to at one point of time actually eat meat and the idea was so repulsive that the person who is narrating the story ends up vomiting all over the table or something along those lines so that's a classic example of the overton window in action yeah um and uh, very tangential uh, but something else which i've read recently but, and which we're not discussing today is that uh, when europeans first made uh, contact with po- polynesians the polynesians yeah. were aghast that uh, european men and european w- women used to eat the same food <laughs> this uh, i was going through your blog today and like you have forgotten all of what i read of uh, jared diamond's works but this sounds like it's straight out of diamond Uh, this is out of uh, a book called Sea Peoples by uh, Christina Thompson, which is about uh, the history of Polynesia. Oh, okay. But uh, given that uh, Jared Diamond did spend a lot of time on the edge of Polynesia and uh, New Guinea, uh, yeah. I see how it makes sense. <laughs> But yes, to come back to your original point, the they being aghast at the fact that European men and women would eat the same food. it's um the overton window will not just apply over there what is to me even more fascinating is how overton windows might change back here on earth and out there in space and you might eventually end up having wildly different and divergent cultures along a whole variety of dimensions 
one of which will be the principle of what is justice and what is punishment yeah oh truly fascinating but given time constraints i think it's time to move on to the second of the blog post that we're going to speak about this is one that i personally am very interested in learning more about both from you and as a consequence of our conversation reading more about it as time goes by paleo fantasy so i'm anybody who's listening will have guessed that this is something to do with the by now world famous paleo diet but why don't you give us the details of what is being written about or spoken about in this particular episode okay so we are talking about a book called paleo fantasy or paleo fantasy uh, by a lady called marlene zook mm-hmm. marlene zook is a scientist who whose area of uh, study is the evolution of insects okay it's important to say that uh, while her research feeds into this book it's not about insects it is about not just the paleo diet but mm-hmm. the whole tendency of people to go hey the uh, our ancestors the cavemen the uh, uh, the paleolithic stone age uh, people lived like this so mm-hmm. that's probably the best way for us to live as well and okay this is a 10 chapter long debunking of that in all its forms <laughs> sounds like fun i want to read this book now not yes. to be clear because i'm inherently against the paleo diet or something like that but anything that debunks what is popular right now always makes a good contrarian reading yeah All right let's begin with the first chapter and you've made notes for each chapter in this book we might not have time to cover uh, all of them we'll see how it goes but we'll the, do the interesting yeah. ones yes exactly the ones that are interesting to us anyways the audience must suffer our biases yeah okay so uh, very quickly from the first chapter you spoke about uh, how sharing food could have been the evolutionary trigger for the social structure of uh, human beings what this reminds me of is a talk by matt ridley i think it's a ted talk if i'm not mistaken called when ideas have sex in which he speaks about how ricardo's theory of comparative advantage is one way to understand how humans began to evolve females he said would stay around wherever there were settlements and try and hunt for tubers and roots and the men would go out and hunt and if you wanted to get a somewhat complete diet then you just needed to hunt for a little more meat so you can share it with the women and the women needed to, needed to dig a little bit more root so that they could share that with the men and that's how society began to evolve so i think this uh, concept of the women are doing the hunting and uh, the women are doing the gathering tubers and the men are doing the hunting is uh, one of the things which uh, marlin sok does try to debunk but okay. which doesn't distract from ridley's larger point right um what this book does uh, draw as a line of thought about hunting and how it leads to sharing and how that leads to society is mm-hmm. that the amount of meat which you uh, get from an animal is not something that you as an individual uh, hunter can finish by yourself so right. you, you you share it with uh, everybody else 
Okay. Parallel to that, you as a hunter cannot take down an animal by yourself. You have to have other people hunting along with you. Right. So, as soon as you're switching onto a diet that uh, is uh, filled with meat brought from hunting, sharing. becomes part of that almost as a either virtuous cycle or vicious cycle depending on how you see it true fair enough okay and from this chapter i'll very quickly note that i love the bhag bhag dk bose reference and i color me amazed that ozzy osborn thought he actually needed to do a dna test to find out that he had neanderthal ancestry i'm maybe it was uh, maybe he was just looking for uh, confirmation bias or maybe people uh, <laughs> or maybe maybe or maybe the dna testing uh, company wanted a celebrity endorsement or who knows maybe both maybe both all right uh, chapter 2 diamond has actually written if i'm not mistaken an essay called humanity's greatest mistake or something along those lines in which he speaks about agriculture as being humanity's greatest mistake Yeah, It's, and that is thoroughly yeah. debunked in this chapter. Excellent. Could you please just briefly elaborate on how Diamond got that part wrong? I'm very glad to hear you say that because I'm not at all sympathetic to that point of view. Uh, so there are two main uh, stands which uh, this argument makes, and I think it's not just uh, Jared Diamond, but also Yuval Noah Harari. And since then, it's been taken up by various other people. but the two uh, arguments uh, against agriculture the uh, which uh, which are prominent and which have also been debunked in this chapter the first says that as soon as uh, you shift from a lifestyle which is hunting meat and gathering plants and e- eating those to and moving about from place to place to hunt and gather to a lifestyle where you se- se- settle in one place and they then start either rearing animals or growing uh, crops to eat okay two things happen one is that you become much sicker right because as soon as you're in one place you are much more vulnerable to diseases mm-hmm. whether from your own waste or whether you're getting or whether you're catching viruses from the animals you're rearing and this and the second uh, point is that you also having switched from a very diet where you're a lot of things and where you're eating a lot of different uh, uh, kinds of tubers and fruit to right. just rice or just millets or just barley you end up lacking in vitamins or proteins and you become malnourished so the evidence uh, cited uh, is that when you find archaeological uh, human remains of hunter gatherer people they are much they are much taller and healthier which you can make out from the, uh, which you can make out from the skeletons and as soon as uh, you get to the archaeological remains of human beings from settlements where they were growing crops their height has fallen by almost a foot so 
Hmm. Yeah, this is uh, this is evidence. The evidence itself is not debunked, but the narrative that this was a mistake which we've never recovered from uh, it, that is debunked because uh, Malin Zook points out that short sure, the the height dropped, and uh, for about a thousand years, people who had settled down and had started. Uh, practicing agriculture were much uh, shorter and much more mal- uh, malnourished than their ancestors but over a period of uh, a thousand years they bounced back the the height difference vanished fascinating i remember reading somewhere that uh, north koreans now have statistically significantly lower height compared to south koreans from a ridiculously similar gene pool but i'm sure if and when reunification takes place the north koreans won't take all that long to get back to what should have been their height in the first place the short sure. and the other point which is uh, put forward as an argument that agriculture was a mistake is mm-hmm. that uh, if you're in a hunter gatherer ti- tribe and we're not talking about an imaginary hunter gatherer tribe but current day hunter gatherer tribes yeah. you spend much less time working where work is defined as uh, going out to hunt or going out to gather mm-hmm. and, uh, compared to someone who is practicing small scale agriculture now okay. again the point uh, which uh, professor zook or dr zook i'm uh, not too sure uh, which he goes by makes against this is that this idea that hunting gathering is very idyllic and and leaves you with a lot of uh, leisure time ignores how much time you spend as a child or as a uh, as an adolescent learning how to hunt or gather right i mean i, I couldn't agree more with that okay uh the chapter on milk i still can't get over the fact that mouse milk has 2.2 and a half times as much calories as cow milk does so i i'm sure that it it only needs about a milliliter or maybe even less uh, to do the test and find out how how many calories they have by comparison i am fascinated to fi- find out how they got that 1 milliliter of mouse milk in the first place Yep, yep. Things people do. But I also learned today by reading your blog post that milk milk protein allergies are independent of lactose intolerance. I would never have guessed. So casein intolerance and lactose intolerance are not the same thing, which is an obvious which in hindsight seems obvious, but it came as a surprise to me. Yeah, uh, I I I think I had the same reaction. And um, lactose intolerance is uh, i i didn't blog about the mechanism but that's also something very interesting as babies all human beings have an enzyme called lactase mm-hmm. uh the fun- which is able to break down lactose right as as we as we grow old while the gene to uh, to produce lactase still exists mm-hmm. for some reason across ma- mammals it switches off however 
there are some human beings who have evolved the ability to not switch the, this gene off the the gene stays on their whole life and those are the people who can digest milk as adults hmm. okay all right i'm going to right now simply because of lack of time skip the chapter on uh, grains although i would love to if time permits come back to this chapter but exercising the latest well i don't know how latest it is but the current emphasis on high intensity interval training i think it is called is yeah. i learned today that it is related to paleo i had no clue so i mean i i think we uh, skip the larger theme of uh, the book which is that a lot of things which are uh, called paleo really have no archaeological evidence and are just people trying to uh, create a story of how cavemen and our ancestors would have uh, would have done whatever is their pet fad or uh, pet trend mm-hmm. so i mean it's not necessary that uh, it, it, it's not uh, i don't think it's debunked that uh, our ancestors might have been doing uh, high high interval uh, intensity exercise but it, what this is debunking is really an argument or a story uh, told by uh, crossfitters or paleo lifestyle uh, people that marathoning is artificial endurance running is artificial and is something which uh, our, our ancestors simply would not have done simply would not have done so there are paleo lifestyle blogs which say that ma- marathoning is a modern day invention and uh, the whole idea that you just run for 3 hours at a stretch is something which no self respecting caveman would ever have done the yeah. the self respecting caveman would have uh, done things which sound suspiciously suspiciously like crossfit uh, su- such as lifting rocks out of the way uh, do, uh, uh, running away from uh, pre- predators running towards uh, prey etc okay the one point that i wanted to uh, speak about a little bit over here is uh, you speak about taleb nicolas nasim taleb believing in random exercise which fits into his uh, affection for things that are random but also fear being a vital component of running i don't think i've come across this in any of his books per se but could you speak a little bit about this the fear being a vital component of running so apparently at one time he bought into the uh, arguments of the uh, paleo lifestyle approach to exercise which is that the most exercise our ancestors would have got is running away from uh, tigers and uh, that therefore we uh, evolutionary we are evolved to run only in conditions of fear and which they further extend on to you uh, you can't be afraid for 3 hours uh, 
at a time so a marathon is horribly artificial and should not be done at all um i don't know if i'm uh, making a very basic point over here or missing something very basic and obvious but what about hunting down prey over a long period of time will that not entail a lot of running or is it covered in the book yeah this chapter is all about uh, the hypothesis that uh, early human hunters uh, were u- used to hunt by chasing uh, prey for hours on end until the prey simply tired out and uh, couldn't uh, run anymore ah okay all right let's go back to the chapter on the paleo fantasy of food meat grains and cooking what i found fascinating over here is zook's main counter being the fact that perhaps human beings have been eating grains for much longer than we would have thought otherwise which now that i think about it makes a whole lot of sense and the second point that i sorry please go ahead yeah so uh, zook does cite uh, archaeological evidence which uh, which says that uh, barley or millet or uh, i i forget the exact grain but some kind of grain was being uh, cultivated as much as 10000 years ago mm-hmm. and the second point that you spoke about over here is how the bow and the arrow was key to increasing the meat component of diet so as tools got more sophisticated you started eating more meat but before that it's all whether it is in their wild form or in a more cultivated form grains in one way or the other likely have have been a part of human diet for way longer than we would have suspected otherwise yeah and interesting sorry and yeah, again go ahead. i mentioned that uh, she is uh, an insect evolution uh, specialist but this is where her uh, area of specialization really feeds into this book as someone who studies uh, insect evolution and as insects have uh, very little time between generations she right. is able to see evolution acting very rapidly ah okay since uh, since a generation uh, for an insect could be uh, say 3 months to a year right. she uh, she she might be seeing four generations in a single year and then uh, seeing how evolution uh, plays across over those four generations so it's like a very accelerated uh, study of evolution happening in front of your eyes and having seen such rapid evolution her may, her uh, argument really rests on that uh, the main argument for a paleo lifestyle is that uh, we are still uh, in evolutionary terms where we were 10000 years ago her counter to that is that 10000 years is more than enough uh, uh, time for uh, for evolution to take place mhm yeah calorie carbon that sounds like a fairly persuasive argument to me all right i'm going to add that book to my to read list uh, moving on to the third and the last of our episodes although based one on what you have written and second because of constraints of time i don't think we'll have too much time to speak about it but the interview that uh, russ roberts conducted of george will on the conservative sensibility very sure. quickly for our audience what is a conservative sensibility not as george will understand it does you understand it 
Well, as I understood it, uh, George Will's conservative uh, sensibility is to not trust too much in grand projects to change human behavior. Mm-hmm. And really, I think that's the one-line summary. <laughs> Okay. The reason I wanted to spend a little bit of time speaking about this is because on my increasingly ever longer list of podcasts to listen to, I have uh, Amit Verma's interview. I think it is with Jaitir Trao on the Indian conservatives. I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I wanted to see your thoughts about this particular episode before I begin listening to that one. I'm driving back from Dharwad to Pune tomorrow. So I'm going to catch up on a lot of podcast episodes. But let's riff off on that particular topic, what would you think an Indian conservative would look like? Well, to begin with, I think uh, George Will uh, makes conservatism sound much nicer than it could be. Mm -hmm. If we are going to riff off this much, there is a a quote I really like about the difference between being a traditional and a conservative. And I'm trying to uh, look up who made this quote. But uh, it uh, it basically says that a traditionalist is someone who is aware of history mm-hmm. and who seeks to uh, preserve it. Okay. And a conservative is someone who's scared of the future and uh, tries to ensure that it doesn't happen. (laughs) Okay. And I feel that a lot, uh, a lot of people who defend conservatism will uh, defend the traditionalist part of this and try to say that, no, the... uh, the conservative part of this uh, quote is not that uh, true. Okay. All right. One thing that uh, you haven't written this, but this comes from the, I forget what is called the stub or whatever the word is for the brief description of the podcast about a conservative vision that embraces the dynamic nature of life. This goes a little bit against what uh, you spoke about right now in terms of the quote uh, could, could, could I interrupt? The, this quote yeah, is by uh, uh, the science fiction writer uh, Anil Menon. Okay. Uh, uh, so about the difference between traditionalists and uh, conservatives. Right. So in this case, uh, this one single sentence, and I think this is the last thing that we'll speak about right now. Will argues, you say, for a conservative vision that embraces the dynamic nature of life. Or other, Russ Roberts says this. Would that not go against the quote that you spoke about right now? Yeah, I think uh, that a a conservative view that uh, embraces the dynamic nature of life is what Anil Menon's uh, quote uh, says is a traditionalist. So, I mean, we are talking about competing definitions. And if Will does want to say that uh, conservatism is about... uh, embracing dynamism, more power to him. I just don't think very many conservatives will agree with him. Okay. 
right and i know i said that would be the last point but i can't resist adding one over here you speak about how the tendency to memorize whatever it is in this case baseball statistics but the tendency to memorize stuff ends up having huge side benefits or well at least a side benefit of improving recall but i would say that's a pretty huge side benefit care to elaborate what exactly did you memorize and how did that process play out so uh, russ roberts complimented george will on how he was able to speak extempore and recall facts statistics uh, quotations off the top of his head without having to refer to notes mm-hmm. and will said that uh, as a child he had been a baseball fan and would uh, memorize baseball statistics i think from uh, baseball trading cards but uh, maybe that's just my brain filling details in but uh, however he did it he used to uh, memorize uh, baseball statistics and he says that it's probably this habit which has made him so good at uh, remembering things without having to refer to anything okay all right that i think is more than enough to unpack for our eventual audience so we will leave it at that thank you so much for making the time Thank you for the call. Have a good drive back to Pune. Thank you. Enjoy whatever one enjoys in Delhi. Take care. See you. All right. See you. Bye. You've been listening to That Reminds Me, Episode 1E. Today's conversation was between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. Ashish's blog is econforeverybody.com and Adish's blog is adish.net. That reminds me is a podcast produced by Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. You can find all episodes of this podcast at thatreminds.me where you can leave your comments. You can also email us. Our address is feedback@thatreminds.me. The podcast is supported in part by a grant from Emergent Ventures. The show music is The Carnival of the Animals performed by the Seattle Youth Symphony courtesy of Mozopet at musopet.org. 